Where does the idea of Messiah develop, and when does it develop? Were the ancient Jews just completely ignorant in the scripture that prophesy about the Messiah? Or did they read it wrong? This episode is all about understanding God's messianic figures in the book of Isaiah. In Hebrew, a Messiah comes from the word Mashiach. Mashiach is related to this idea of an anointed, being anointed. If you look in the stories of Old Testament, you have a range of different figures receiving anointing. Um, and so, and they're called actually um, anointed ones or messiahs. They're called Mashiachs. Saul is referred to in that way. King David is referred to in that way. People often say the word Messiah or quote the book of Isaiah when talking about Jesus, but probably don't know what they really mean. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Abernathy, an Old Testament theologian currently at Wheaton Seminary. He co-authored God's Messiah in the Old Testament and did his dissertation regarding Isaiah. I'm Justin. You're listening to Young and Sanctified. Thanks for joining. Here we go. All right, Dr. Abernethy, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be on with you, Justin. So in this time of season as we're recording this, it is the Christmas season. A lot of people are going to be referencing uh, the book of Isaiah when we're talking about the Messiah. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But I was curious if you could just give us the basic context of the book of Isaiah, you know, the time, the place, author or authors. Yeah, sure. Uh Again, I, I think it's great as you're thinking about Christology to kind of anchor that um, in some Old Testament passages, and and the Book of Isaiah is a great um, a great book to be looking at. But as you mentioned, it have invited me to 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 set a little bit of the context for Isaiah. That that's one of the biggest barriers people have for trying to read Isaiah. It's just a huge book, mm-hmm. sixty six chapters, and uh, set during a time far different from our own. So, in general, the the book opens um, in the first verse by mentioning uh, a number of different kings who were kings during what we would call the 8th century B.C. So, Isaiah the prophet was a prophet in uh, Jerusalem during this time. The two kingdoms, or the, the nation of Israel, had divided in two around hmm. 930 B.C., up north uh, became the nation of Israel, and then in the south it was Judah. And Isaiah was prophesying in Judah uh, during the 8th century, uh, let, let's say around 740 or so, mm-hmm. started during the time of King Uzziah. And his ministry uh, stretched until um, and through uh, the reign of King Hezekiah, which would kind of put... Um, Isaiah's ministry is ending, you know, around the year of um, 690 or so uh, BC. So we have um, Isaiah prophesying for a really long period of time. I um, have only been a professor for about 12 years now, (laughs) full time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I already think back to things I've written Mm -hmm. and the lectures I've given and there are different things you emphasize at different moments in your prophetic career. Hmm. 
And so we have Isaiah prophesying over 50 years, but something important to know about his ministry is he was prophesying during a time where there was tremendous amount of international upheaval. Hmm. You have uh, the Syrians who kind of up in Mesopotamia uh, began to arise again. And in the 740s, um, there's a, um, a king there who really brings about a resurgence of Assyria, and they're spreading their empire across that kind of ancient Near Eastern context. And so you have a number of um, incursions into uh, Israel and also into Judah by Assyria, where ultimately the northern kingdom, Israel, has their capital city, Samaria, fall. Hmm. They're taken into exile. And so Isaiah is very much prophesying during a time that we could maybe describe as a time of kingdom upheaval. Hmm. And so a big question that Isaiah is, um, you, you know, speaking into is who is really king during this time? Hmm. Is God king or is uh, Assyria and its powers more powerful than God? And related to that, Isaiah is speaking against um, a number of different kings in Judah, earthly kings, kings Hmm. from the line of David, who really are not following the Lord. So Isaiah is calling his own people to account, trying to give a window into how God's at work through these other nations. And what we find is that although Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, doesn't fall during Isaiah's time, God miraculously delivers them from a reign um, of King Sennacherib in 701 BC, Isaiah anticipates that there will be another empire called Babylon that would come and eventually take uh, uh, the house of David into exile along with the treasury of the temple, and that empire would be Babylon. And and we see um, Hmm. Jerusalem fall. It's recounted in uh, 2 Kings um, and in Jeremiah, and uh, that takes place around 586 B.C. So you have Isaiah anticipating this fall to, to Babylon, and when you get to the second half of the book, this is, you carefully worded your question of Isaiah, uh, or how many authors, or, uh, or is it a singular author? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, we aren't introduced to another name of a prophet in the book of Isaiah. We're only introduced to the prophet Isaiah. But what's important to see is that in the second half of the book, the sh- context shifts and the, wor- the words from the prophet begin to speak to a people who are in exile. Hmm. People who would have been taken into exile during the, uh, under Babylon. They would have been wondering if these other gods are more powerful uh, than Yahweh. And um, there is a prophetic word given. Some would hmm. say this is a, prof- exile, uh, a prophet there in exile who's kind of speaking. Um, or maybe this was the prophet Isaiah himself uh, receiving revelation from God uh, of words to speak to this future context. Mm-hmm. But what we see is hope being given for exiles um, and promise that they're going to return uh, under Cyrus and also even perhaps speaking to the post-exilic realities 
when they've come back into the land and are trying to make sense of what it looks like to live uh, under God's people again. And some would locate the final part of the book in the post-exilic period. So, um, so that gives a general picture. And I would just say for our conversation today, I think it's really important to see how any discussion of Christology or uh, hope for a messianic figure um, is very much couched within the context of extreme um, upheaval, extreme turmoil, and a vision whereby God is at work trying to establish his kingdom in the world and um, renew his people. And so, so the question is how might a future kind of messianic figure bring about a, a new reality after Israel and Judah have experienced such judgment at the hands of God hmm. Hmm. for their sins? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, let me just say I'm amazed that, it, I mean, it, it appeared that all that came from your, just your memory? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's kind of like people who uh, know all the statistics of uh, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s or Michael <laughs> Jordan, you know. Yeah, you, that's true. You spend enough time in things you love, you you can just kind of, you, you end up knowing it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's awesome. That is definitely, like, that's my goals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So before we move on, do you think it's like a, should it be a stumbling block for people for the possibility of like a, uh, not a redactor, but somebody that, like an editor or somebody that contributed to what we know as the book of Isaiah that isn't the prophet Isaiah. Just the, I know that's a theory. I know it's debated, but the fact yeah, that that yeah. exists, should that be? Yeah. You, you know, in my perspective, people have different opinions on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there uh, needs to be a, um, a sense where we're not going to use that as a litmus test for faithfulness to mm authority of scripture um there there may be some who um hold to multiple authorship view um that i would say oh i don't know if that's a faithful handling of scripture based on how they do it i think if you have a multiple authorship view what is important in terms of orthodoxy is that you're not adopting a view that would put you at odds with the theology of the book itself. Hmm. And one of the aspects of the theology of Isaiah is that God is able to predict the future. Um, and in particular, God predicts um, in advance, and that seems to be a clear signal that God is a God unlike any other God, is that King that there would be a king named Cyrus who would come to um, deliver his people. And so um, if you are, let's say, going to have a second Isaiah um, exilic figure, if you had multiple authorship, you, you could maybe bring that about by just making sure you're saying that that ex- um, exilic prophet um, or second Isaiah, some would say, Mm-hmm. was prophesying before that actually happened. It wasn't like something later invented to try to make God look good, <laughs> but instead uh, is really acknowledging God's ability to mm. tell the future. So I think there's different ways to hold each approach. Yeah, My own uh, approach is to, uh, like Reverend Childs, who, who um, 
I'm indebted to is my real aims is I want to read the book how it's inviting me to read it. Hmm. I can ask a lot of fun historical scholarly questions about possible historical backgrounds, but, but as we read the entire book, we're kind of invited to read it through the lens of there just being one prophet Hmm. who is speaking these things. And while saying that, I think almost certainly uh, we have a lot of prophecy from the book of Isaiah reflected in the book, Hmm. but I'm open to there being other and editors who came along who gave shape to those oracles from Isaiah to turn them into kind of book form. And, um, you know, but, but again, it's a, it's a very, um, contentious question in some faith circles, yeah. uh, but I try to have this sort of middle road where I, I don't want it to be a litmus test uh, for faith. Um, but I kind of try to adopt a posture of what might it look like to at least read the book from the lens of it being for one prophet. Yeah, that's a more, I, I like that attitude. You know, I was reading for a, a paper I'm writing, I was reading um, John Oswalt's um, mm-hmm. commentaries and his response is like a tongue in cheek kind of thing of, you know, most people resist one author because they don't believe prophecy. <laughs> yeah. I don't, so I like yours where it's, it's in the middle, you know, it's, it's really gracious. And so that's a good way forward. So you already mentioned the word Messiah already. Um, yep. And, you know, like, like I said, this season of Christmas that we're recording this, people say it a lot. What does that mean? You know, I know, it, you know, in, in, Greek, I think it translates to Christos or Christos. That's right. Um, That's right. So how is that, what does it mean in Isaiah specifically? And Yeah. Yeah. yeah great, great question. And this is one of the um, biggest debated issue, issues, not what the term means, but what counts as messianic hmm. uh, in the Old Testament. Starting just with the terminology, in Hebrew, uh, Messiah comes from the word Mashiach, okay? Mashiach is related to this idea of an anointed, being anointed. If you look in the stories of the Old Testament, you have a range of different figures receiving anointing. Um, and so, and they're called actually um, anointed ones or messiahs. They're called mm-hmm. Mashiachs. Saul is referred to in that way. King David is referred to in that way. Um, we even see on occasion prophets and priests being referred to in that way. So, so it was a common descriptor, um, in the ancient times of someone who has been kind of designated or set aside for a sacred role or task before the Lord. Hmm. And then the, the question arises that, and, and as you said, Mashiach, when it was translated into, uh, Greek, they use the term Christos, which comes from the uh, Greek idea of anointing as well. Um, so, <clears throat> so this Messiah idea then that, that comes from that word mm-hmm. um, really pivots around um, two points of recognition. One is we recognize that Mashiach, during Israel's history, was able to refer to an existing ruler of the time. Hmm. Okay. But then second, we do see that Mashiach can or could take on a sort of um, 
shall we say, kind of a conceptual lens for talking about hopes revolving around figures who are like those historically anointed figures that would hmm. play an important role in Israel. Interesting. So, so let me let me tease this out a little bit more. So, when you look in a um, like a, a concordance and, and you look up the term anointed one in the Old Testament, you're going to find that the word only occurs once in the book of Isaiah. Hmm. And it only occurs not in reference to a hope for a Davidic king, not in hope for a coming suffering servant, but it, it refers actually to Cyrus as God's anointed. And, um, and he, he's he, who's going to serve this really important role of allowing God's people to come home. So the question we could ask is, if we're only limiting our focus on the Messiah in the Old Testament to the times when Mashiach occurs mm-hmm. in prophetic passages about a future individual, you're going to be pretty limited <laughs> on what you're going to find. You may mm-hmm. find in the book of Daniel one reference to a future kind of a, the anointed one. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we look at the way in the intertestamental period, though, um, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there began to be what we could call a messianic hope develop, which aligns with promises in the Old Testament that might not have had the term Messiah mentioned with them, mm-hmm. but it became a kind of explanatory category for talking about the times in the Old Testament when there are hopes for a coming kind of anointed figure who would play a really significant role in establishing God's kingdom. Hmm. So what we're looking at in Isaiah, for instance, we're familiar with passage like there shall come a um, shoot uh, from the stump of Jesse, right? This wonderful hope of a future king. It doesn't say Messiah in that passage, but nonetheless, these sort of anointed figures from Israel's history, which were the kings, um, it, here you're, there's hope for kind of a future anointed figure, even though the term isn't used, a, a future hmm. figure from the line of David who, who would be king. And what we've done is we had, one might attempt to describe the hopes of the Old Testament and hopes for a coming figure is kind of building on the intertestamental period as well as uh, the New Testament use, which is very much alive in the New Testament time, mm-hmm. to the point where um, in Matthew's gospel, when it opens, he, uh, he lists a genealogy and then it culminates in, and uh, finally we, we see Jesus born, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, that they're using this category to describe figure who is fulfilling these Old Testament hopes that might not have had the term Messiah mentioned in them, but certainly fit within this kind of idea of a future figure who play a really special designated role in establishing God's kingdom. Interesting. So so what I hear you say is like, especially in the second, second temple period, was there like a, a developing silhouette of a Messiah based on the scripture? Of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible? 
Yeah, yeah, that that's right. So that there would be a range of different figures that were being described, you, mm. you know, and it's kind of like how as over time we get perspective when we look back on, again, I'm, I'm a sports fan, but, you know, you, you look back and you kind of start talking about um, when you're talking about Michael Jordan or mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant and Shaq, yeah. you're, you could start using the term, those are the greatest dynasties, if you will. We have ways of talking about these different eras. And similarly, I think what was happening in the intertestamental period, especially think of this time when they're living under foreign rule for such a long time. They are um, looking back over Israel's scriptures to see what hopes there are for future figures. And and they start developing constellations of texts, Hmm. that would point to hopes for actually a range of different types of messianic figures, um, kind of priestly figures or uh, right. royal kingly figures um, and... Uh, Divine figures, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. So it became a, a kind of catch-all, um, a, a category that could refer to a kind of group of expectations for future Interesting. Uh, action, yeah. Well, in, in your book that you co-authored, I think uh, God's Messiah in the Old Testament, correct? Yeah, that's right. Make sure I quoted it right. I'll have that in the show notes so that the listeners can view it and purchase it. But um, in you in the chapter of on Isaiah, yeah, you, po- you point out there are three main what you call lead agents in Isaiah. Yeah. So yeah. And you and you kind of mentioned them just now. So can you talk about you know maybe one or two of those yeah. if we have enough time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me say this. So in the book, God's Messiah in the Old Testament, my co-author and I, Greg Goswell, decided to focus primarily on one strand of messianic hope in the Old Testament. And that's namely the hope of like a future royal king. Hmm. Um, in another book I've written, it's called um, The Book of Isaiah and God's Kingdom. I have a chapter in there that it's called the lead agents of the king. Hmm. And in there I talk about the hope of three different figures, uh, the hope of a Davidic king, the hope of a suffering servant, and hope for an anointed messenger. So for those of you listening, you're like, ooh, I really want to dig into this. Um, and you get God's Messiah in the Old Testament, and you're like, oh, but you've left me hanging. You stopped after, you know, Isaiah 1 to 39. You, you can get more uh, more there in that book. <laughs> um but uh, so so let, let's think a little bit about Isaiah's hope for um, a coming king from um, the line of David, that, that kind of royal messianic hope. Mm-hmm. That hope is situated within four different passages, perhaps five, in uh, Isaiah 1 to 39. So the first poss- possible glimmer uh, of, of hope uh, and maybe we'll come back to this um, shortly, mm-hmm. or, or actually, may, why don't I address it now? Sure. Um, in Isaiah le- 7, there's just this promise that is very well known among Christians that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the, this promise of a virgin conceiving and having a son and being called Emmanuel 
in its original context in Isaiah 7, is referring to a child who, let me read the very next verse, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy, Emmanuel, knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So what kings um, are the, is King Ahaz, who's receiving this sign, um, Mm. dreading? They're dreading Israel, and they're dreading uh, Syria, who has come against them. This would be in the kind of 730s BC. Mm -hmm. And what God is saying is, hey, this virgin or or this young woman, some certainly known to Ahaz and Isaiah, is going to conceive, have a son, you're going to call him Emmanuel. Manual means God with us. And this child, as you look at him, as he grows and is able to kind of make decisions between right and wrong or good and evil or maybe even discern what food is good and what's bad food, um, these nations that they, he is so scared of are going to have departed and it's going to be a sign to them that God has been with them to save them. Now, this originally kind of historical sign if you will, where that God would deliver his people, mm-hmm. um, gets developed in the New Testament and applied to, um, to Jesus in an even more profound way. And this introduces an idea that I would, uh, again, as you're thinking about Christology, would remind our listeners that Christological hope in the New Testament isn't limited only to passages talking about a coming future kind of Davidic king. Hmm. But what we start to see is that passages that talk about the coming of God and God's work of bringing salvation begin being applied to Jesus because here you have in Jesus the very person of God who has come drawn near to this world to bring salvation. So this pattern of God being with them in the Old Testament time during the time of Ahaz finds it just complete culmination in God with us in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing with Isaiah 40, where it says in the wilderness, John the Baptist is that voice in the wilderness, Mm. saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, the word Lord there in Hebrew is Yahweh. What the voice of John the Baptist is doing is preparing for the coming of God. Mm. I don't think that would quite classify as kind of a hope for a Davidic king, in, a, in an original reading, but by the time you've met Jesus, you're seeing Jesus is fully God in the flesh. Hmm. He, Jesus, this divine Christology is, is, is the manifestation of God. Hmm. These promises that God would come to save. So kind of, so I think one way you could think about Isaiah speaking into this topic of, um, Christology is recognizing how much of what we find in terms of its hopes that God would come and that God would save are found in our Messiah, Jesus Christ. But in terms of the specific passages that talk about a coming future Davidic king, there are four. One is in Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. The second is Isaiah 11, 1 to 9 or 10. Um, the third is a really interesting one in chapter 16, verses um, around verse 4. And then the final one is Isaiah 32, verse 1. Hmm. So 
Let me read just a couple of these verses for our listeners. So I'll start with Isaiah 9, um, and we'll we'll start with verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mm. So here we, we see this wonderful promise that God is going to do something to bring light to their darkness, mm. bring light to the darkness that they've experienced under in captivity. And what we find is a child will be given child will be born god and he'll bear names that point to the wonders of god as counselor point to mm-hmm. god's might point to god's being the everlasting father and this prince of peace and if you ask yourself what is the particular job description of this future messianic king what we find is that uh, it's particularly centered around bringing about justice and righteousness. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. One of the hallmark features that any Davidic king was to bring about in history was to bring about justice and righteousness in society. Hmm. At the time of Isaiah, that's exactly what they were not doing. <laughs> and so this during such a time of oppression and justice, idea of a hoped-for Davidic king who would bring about justice and righteousness in society is just um, central. The other... Um, well, can I can I ask yeah. about that real quick? Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious because I, uh, I recently heard somebody preach on this verse and they, they really glossed over justice and righteousness. But it made me think, and hearing you say it again makes me think like, where is that today, though? You know, so we believe Jesus came 2,000 yeah. years ago, but there's still yeah. not an established justice and righteousness, you know? Yeah. What yeah. is it? Mishpat and Zedekah, right? In the yeah. Yeah. Hebrew. That's right. That's right. Very good. Yeah. And and I, I would just say, and readers can read it on their own, all four of the other passages mention how this future Davidic king, all of them, the central thing they're talking about is that this Davidic king will bring about justice and righteousness for wow. the poor, for the vulnerable. So um, so I'll tell you one story, and then I'll, I'll chime in with, on, on a great question. I, I remember talking about prophetic hope in, a, in a, um, a class that I taught in Australia. And um, after class, you know, I'd spent three hours in class talking about all sorts of stuff. Um, a Sudanese refugee who is a student in that class uh, came up to me afterwards and he looks right at me and he says, that will be great. And I said, oh, what will be great? And it, I, I couldn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, a king who will rule with justice and righteousness. And, and I said, mm. oh, you know what it's like. <laughs> To not live under rulers with ju- who bring about justice and righteousness. He smiled. He said, yes, I do. Hmm. But you could tell how this 
hope for a coming king had touched his heart with a vision that promoted longing and waiting. So one answer to your question of where is this sort of Davidic king who rules with justice and righteousness now? I would say that's why we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Hmm. That's why during Advent our our delight is not just in the first coming, but also in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we long for him to come. And Revelation even uses language from some of these Isaiah promises about a future Davidic king Hmm. who will come with a sword in his mouth and establish justice in this world. Um, So it's something we hope for. It's something as we look at all the issues of injustice our world today should be prompting us towards a Christology that says, oh Lord, come and do that. Mm. On the other hand, I don't think it's entirely only a future hope. I think we can look how Jesus came in the first coming and very much embodied the sort of justice and righteousness that we see talked about in this passage and the way he treated the most vulnerable and the way he criticized the ruling uh, Pharisees of the time for tithing dill, mint, and cumin, but neglected the weightier matters, which are justice, uh, mercy, etc. We we see him very much um, concerned with justice and righteousness. And I think that in, in some way we might say that, yes, Jesus in his first coming came as the Messiah. It was very important that he came from the line of David. But his mission primarily revolved around that of the the second figure that we see in Isaiah, messianic figure, is that of a suffering servant Hmm. who kind of carries out a a, a different kind of ministry within the establishment of God's kingdom. And we can talk more about that later. So, but I, I would just say kind of as we think about Jesus's earthly life, he did reflect a concern for justice and righteousness. And um, if we take this one step further, if we as the church are now the body of Christ in the world today, one thing that people should say is, oh, where is this reign of justice and righteousness in the world? Hmm. They should be able to point to the church should Amen. be able to point to the body of Christ who are kind of the hands and feet of our God who very much cares for justice and righteousness. And um, uh, even as we wait for our king to come and establish it even more fully. Mm. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You know, the, the Salvation Army has a heritage of n- being non-sacramental. I'm yeah. sure you may know that. Um, yeah. But in in the founding, the the founder kind of co- started coining this idea of the good the sacrament of the good Samaritan, yeah. and that we as a church, um, at least in its founding, I don't know if we're still doing it, but in its founding, attempted to really take that seriously that you know the call to care for the vulnerable and poor. So that's that's a beautiful yeah summary of what you just said. Yeah, so That's and it amazing. can frame this sort of Advent Christmas time for us too of 
reminding us in a sense of our being messianic pilgrim people to quote from a theologian mm. um that we are the body uh today and in um salvation army has been a big light for doing that for for years so yeah amen wow that's definitely and the, I, the story you shared hmm then the do you think a, the longing is also a part of the literature that's produced the long like to to create a people who long for that that king yeah yeah i, I think so i i think there's something about God, as we look at how he's acted over thousands of years, he hasn't been really um, concerned with doing everything all at once. Hmm. There's something about this larger story of redemption that God has set about in this world that is very much wrapped up in this longing um, hmm. that he wants to invite us into. And certainly scripture um is all throughout the Old Testament <laughs> inviting us into this spirit of longing, and it's there in the New Testament as well. Mm. Yeah, amen. Mm. So you you mentioned the suffering servant, and I'm I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are because uh, in preparing for this conversation, I was looking at old notes from a, a Old Testament class where some people think that originally the suffering servant was talking about an actual like person. Um, but then we see in John cha chapter 12, John is uh, taking theology from the suffering servant and like placing it on Jesus. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm really curious about what, you know, what your thoughts are on the, the suffering servant um, yeah. figure. Yeah. Yeah. That That's great. So as soon as you move into Isaiah 40 to, 55, you get one kind of obscure mention of David uh, um, in Isaiah 55, but the figure you meet in Isaiah 40 to 55 is the servant. Okay, mm -hmm. You'll see this term servant in the singular um, in Isaiah <clears throat> 42 is what's called the first servant song. Mm -hmm. um, Isaiah 49, 1 to 7 is the second one. Isaiah 54 um, to 59 is the third one. Then the final one is Isaiah 53, 13 to 53, 12. And these passages have been described as suffering servant passages, but scholarly debate has um, tried to push into, well, what figure here is in the background? And you get something like um, Isaiah 49, for instance. Isaiah 49 is um, a passage where you see um, kind of an individual speaking and saying this, Listen to me, O coastlands, give ear, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. So do you notice this me language? So so the question is, could there be an individual in the background who, who this was them talking about their calling, them being called before birth, something like Jeremiah had been, 
Um, and then in verse two, when it says he made my mouth like a sharp sword, it seems to be that this figure is playing more of a, a um, prophetic role, right? So, um, so could it be that a, um, some would say Deutero Isaiah or second Isaiah is the kind of individual here behind this. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in my perspective, um, although I'm recognized that these prophecies likely come and touch upon prophets who experienced suffering and resonated with this, what we find is that the mission entailed in this passage goes far beyond anything any prophet in exile would have fulfilled. For mm-hmm. instance, in 49 verse 6, it says it's too, um, or I'll start with verse 5, now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Hmm. So this, you kind of push up against any limits of any prophet in exile, first in their ability to um, bring Israel back to God and let alone have this sort of role of bringing all nations to God to experience his salvation. This seems to be kind of this uh, a grander hope that's pushing beyond uh, those pages of some sort of prophetic figure who will have this role of bringing the light of God to all nations. Hmm. But the real tension that emerges in these songs is, but there's a problem. This servant says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. Or in chapter 53, the servant says, I um, gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull up my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and, and spitting. You know, you know, how's it possible that uh, uh, this future kind of prophetic figure who would be experiencing suffering, but is also this sort of model of endurance and trusting the Lord. Mm-hmm. How would this be the means God would use to restore Israel and the nations back to himself? Mm-hmm. And I think that answer comes from it more clearly in Isaiah 53, where we find out that as we read in 53 verse for surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and spitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. This sort of, in my mind, is some of the most remarkable messianic predictive prophecy regarding the suffering servant that aligns with Jesus that we have in the Old Testament. Hmm. Um, it, it, one, one author describes it as kind of this open job description that is setting open throughout history <laughs> and like, who could I fulfill this? But, hmm. but there's this waiting. And then finally you see, um, Jesus come along and all of a sudden it makes sense, hmm. um, where we can see how God could use a prophet like Jesus and anointed messianic prophet who would be 
suffered suffering and rejected Mm -hmm. but also play a priestly role in sprinkling all nations with his blood so a remarkable remarkable hope um that yeah we celebrate uh even in advent that are coming the messiah who did come was one interestingly if you look at matthew's gospel matthew 1 when the angel announces to joseph um, what he's to name Jesus, he said, and you shall call him Jesus because of what he will save his people from their sins. Um, so this sort of role and and saving from from sins central to the uh, task of the, of the suffering servant. Hmm. Hmm. So, how how do you feel about when people interpret when in Isaiah fifty three, by his stripes we are healed? Yeah. I know some, not scholars, but more like pastors, say that that also is a promise of like physical healing in this life, and not just salvation from sins, but also physical yeah. healing. How would how do you feel about that, or how do you? Yeah, that, that that's a great question. Um, I think one of the places you could look is if you turn to First Peter. Those verses are actually quoted, I, I think, at the end of First Peter 2. And what's really clear about this idea of um, we all have gone astray and returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, you know, uh, by his wounds we are healed, it, it's largely talking about the reconciliation work that God has done to bring sinners hmm into a reconciled relationship with God. But that said, I would say that through his stripes and his resurrection, um, we have a tremendous hope for healing. Mm. Um, God can certainly break into our lives and, and show that healing now, but Certainly, even that, again, during Advent, that grander healing we await for when we say, come, Lord Jesus, Hmm. we long for this one who, through his stripes, has not just forgiven our sins, but conquered death and uh, give us hope of resurrection bodies and and life forever. Hmm. So to kind of wrap us up, how, and I'm curious on your perspective on this, how are modern readers, uh, you know, believers right now, how are we supposed to interact with the Old Testament messianic passages? And even, like you said, which was new to me, you know, there are passages that aren't classified as messianic, but still uh, pointed or, you know, became over time um, p- things that they people meditated on. How are we supposed to interact with them? Are we supposed to say like, oh, that's Jesus? Or are we supposed to say, oh, you know, what's the wisdom here? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great question. Um, I, I think that one of the biggest things I would encourage people to do is to slow down and not jump ahead too quickly. So, for instance, in, in that passage you talked about, you heard a sermon from Isaiah 9, mm-hmm. and justice and righteousness wasn't even mentioned. Right. I would encourage us to dwell in these passages, these hopes, and say, well, man, maybe my view of Jesus needs to be expanded in terms of what was being hoped for in him, hmm. right? So, so I, I'm, 
probably less, um, some Old Testament professors like put up all these barriers and say, don't you dare go up to, G-, you know, connect it to Jesus. I'm, I'm more uh, of a sense that I, I want people to connect it to Jesus, but only after really doing that slow, you know, kind of marinating mm. in what the passage is saying and letting it kind of enrich our understanding, for instance, of a Messiah who would bring justice and righteousness and, um, you know, allow our, our view of who Jesus is and what we're hoping for in a second coming to expand. So that that's what I would, my main piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Other, you know, related to that, uh, let's say, you know, you want to look at messianic passages in Isaiah. It's too easy to say, well, here's a messianic passage. Here's another one. We got lots of hopes about a Messiah in Isaiah. Well, what about slowing down and saying, what would it mean for me to actually lean into kind of this idea of my Messiah is a royal Messiah who has and will bring justice and righteousness? And lean into that side of discipleship. What does it look like to be the people of a king who rules with an incredible endowment of wisdom and who is hoped for to, if you look at Isaiah 16, the Salvation Army should know about this one, Hmm. is really envisioning the Messiah as being one who would provide room and just treatment for the refugee, Hmm. for those who, who are displaced. Um, you know, what would it look like to say that is my Messiah, but then also move and then dwell in the passages about the suffering servant. And my Messiah is one who suffered, was rejected, Hmm. was actually disfigured and someone we wouldn't look on with like great uh, fondness. What would it look like to see this Messiah? as a one who is the means by which we're set right with God. Um, so again, uh, just really allowing uh, the rich kind of unique flavor, if you will, of these different passages to give us a more well-rounded relationship mm. with, with our Lord. Mm. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for, so much for your time yeah. and, and your, your critical, important work that I think is... Uh, really helping the church. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's great being on with you, Justin. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.